Hi everyone, welcome to The Human Show, proudly presented and supported by worldpodcast.com. Here we explore the relationships between people, technology and business. Join us on this journey where we interview anthropologists, other researchers and industry people from all over the world, from India to Kenya, US, Europe, to right back here in New Zealand. Hi friends, in today's episode we are talking to Kathleen Ashes, a UX researcher currently leading an insights team at Dreams, Stockholm, Sweden. Kathleen will be talking about her passion, UX research, and the ways to teach and empower teams to do it themselves. She questions the skills that a UX researcher is often expected to have and shares her insights into what she believes makes a good researcher. We explore together some of the practices she engages with in order to democratize research. Kathleen gives examples of projects where she led teams through a learning path with research and shares some lessons learned in the process. We hope you enjoy it. Hi friends, we are here with Kathleen Ashes, um, passionate user researcher. Hi Kathleen. Hello, thank you for having me. Kathleen, before we dive into your wonderful story, I just wanted to contextualize to our listeners how we came in contact. Um, I've I've um, I've been working as an anthropologist in a corpus first for a while now, and I'm I'm always fascinated with researchers or people that are trying to use democratic practices in the in the work that they do in 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 that kind of environment. And I was reading this article um, about a project that you did, um, and I on LinkedIn, and I got really fascinated. I thought, oh, this is so cool. I want to know more about um, what Kathleen is doing, but I also want to know more about your interest and, and how do you approach these democratic pr- processes and integrate them in your research, user research work so naturally. So that's kind of like, let's say, the core angle of my curiosity. Yeah, um, I'm really happy to talk about this. I'm passionate <laughs> about that as well. Yeah. Yeah, but you know, before going into the wonderful work that you do, I wanted to, I want to ask you to tell me and our listeners a little bit about your path. Uh, How did you come to do what you do right now and from where this passion for research? Yes, well, um, I have been working with user research for 15 years now and I kind of gradually uh, moved into a space. I uh, graduated in uh, political science, so like research, of course, like was in my background from there. And while studying, I became really interested in technology and how that uh, facilitates people and what they do with it and the impact it has on their lives. But then I just started to meander, you know, from working in government first and looking at, you know, how internet panels and and getting people to vote for things, how that could have an impact on policies, for example. And then I moved into uh, more academic research and didn't really find my place there. Uh, And then into the accessibility field. And this is where I really started to learn about usability and how, what kind of research you can do because we were in in the company I was at that point we were building things like I worked in the R&D department we were building things for visually impaired people and yeah we just did it based on our best guesses what we thought mm-hmm. visually impaired people need and then we would find out that only 10 people used something that we spent maybe a million euros on. That was not really (laughs) what things should be like when you're spending tax money, right? So this is where I started to really look into applied user research and and what kind of things you need to do to really explore what the problem is and how you solve it. 
And and what um, what spaces were those in? In what country were you work were you working? Yeah. So in terms of meandering, I'm originally from the Netherlands. This is where I was born and raised and educated. But while studying, I lived in South Korea for a while. I met someone who is Australian, so we moved to Australia, and I worked and lived there for a while. We went back to the Netherlands and decided to to have some kind of like taking turn strategy. So when he said, okay, I'm fed up here, let's do something else, we ended up in Sweden. And this is where I've been for the last decade. So we're moving around different cultures, different people, different kinds of jobs. And I think like I see the red thread now, but it did feel like every time I moved, I had to kind of reinvent who am I, what is it I want to do and what kind of job fits me here. So it is. Uh, it's become a quite diverse uh, bunch of industries I've worked in. Like I've worked with offshore engineering and worked with retail. I worked in media, and at the moment I'm working in a fintech. So my interest is super diverse. But I think the thing that always connects it back is like people using technology to improve their lives or to do something for themselves. Um, yeah. Nice. Yeah, it's interesting, but it's always like it makes sense when you look back <laughs> while you're in it. It's just like, okay, what's next? Let's see what we can do. That's new and exciting. Yeah. yeah. And and what what has made you stay in Sweden for so long? Why why aren't you flying to new uh, new lands? My partner asks me this all the time <laughs> because it's my turn to choose, and he's pushing yeah. me to take the next step. <laughs> but you know you. You settle down, you find a nice home, and then you find a nice, you know, people around you, and you love your job, and you have children, and, and then all of a sudden, it's not as easy as just packing your backpack and moving across the world with maybe 20 kilos of luggage. So I think that's that's the thing that's holding me back. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any kind of like places of your list? Like, I really resonate with, with your with your wandering with the story of wandering because I've been exactly the same. And I have this little list where I said, you know, these are places that I want to still live. Um, one of them is Japan, but I wonder, do you have any kind of like places that you say, oh, this is still yeah. on my list of living there one day? Yes, I I do think like the south of Europe. Uh, I'm thinking about Spain, Portugal, France is definitely on the list and Japan also on the list, Korea even again, I'd love to go back there. Uh, but yeah, the, the list is long, so many different <laughs> interests, <laughs> so many different things to, to explore. So, you know, living in the times we are now, it's kind of limiting, right? And so now my space is home. And this is where, yeah. you know, the, work the feet from are home. Not, um, the feet are not eating yet, right? Oh, yeah, there might be a cheat, but you can't really do anything with it. So I'm just trying to focus on the here and now. Yeah. Yeah. Now, so uh, uh, take me to your interest in, in democratic processes and embedding those in, in, in user research. Like how, how did that come from? What What's the red thread following that um, interest? Yeah, when I... While doing user research and working as a like by myself as a user researcher, quite often I was the only researcher in any job or any place that I was in. I always experienced that the more I involve other stakeholders directly and get them to observe and watch and participate in some way or form, that the insights that I would then present later that they would stick more because it would resonate with something that they had directly seen or heard. 
And it wasn't until I started leading a team of researchers uh, at a company called Shipstead, it's a media company here in the Nordics, that I started to really enter the, the like, like working at scale. If even if you are a team, like it seems really luxury, we were a team of maybe up to 10 people. Like it feels like a large research team, right? So it's wonderful if all these different disciplines and backgrounds all coming together. But we were working with 34 product teams. Wow. So so it's like, oh, yeah, we're a big research team. This is wonderful. It's like we can't serve them all. Uh, how, How do we deal with this? So this is where I really start to explore more. How can I democratize research? What can I do to train the different people in the product teams, the PMs or the designers to do their own research? Uh, so we started to focus a lot on training and empowering teams to do their own work. Uh, and then I also start to think a bit more about, okay, what are more creative ways of doing this? Because the standard usability testing uh, or interviewing becomes a bit of a, a drag and I also noticed that I was working in media where we had the product and tech silo but there was also the sales silo that were you know selling all the ads and selling the subscriptions and there was a silo of journalists and you know all together we are creating one product like we create you know how it's shown to the readers um, but they were also really like in terms of the content and how we shape it, how we write and so on, or how we sell this content. All of that goes into what the users experience and see. So I was thinking like, okay, now I have a good grip on our product and tech silo. I've empowered teams to do their own research. How can I involve these others? Like how can I involve them in doing research? So this is where I start to think about, okay, how can we experiment with something big that has impact throughout the whole company and this is how I this led to this experiment uh, I always need a funny name for it so we called it research safari um, mm-hmm. the people involved in it did not like the name so they renamed it to something else but doesn't doesn't matter I called it a research safari and we we ran this experiment where we looked at okay can we have one week where we try and involve as many as people as possible in this uh, one of our newsrooms one of our newspapers in doing research themselves firsthand yeah well what did it mean to do research it means to talk to end users or potential mm. end users firsthand mm. to do guerrilla testing to do interviews to do usability testing all of those things and we set up a week where we, we, it was me and two other team members, where we were there, like visiting the newspaper locally. Uh, and we uh, there, yeah, involved everyone who wanted to be involved in, in going out in the street. So we mm. went to a shopping mall and did guerrilla testing there and asking questions there with a group of journalists, salespeople, uh, marketing podcast owners, like like just a mixed bunch, um, mm-hmm. went out um, and spent the morning in a mall drinking coffee with people and giving them like, you know, a snack and talking with them. We invited people to come to the office and do user testing and interviews. So like there was a whole week with different kinds of activities and everyone who wanted to participate could. Yeah. And what was your role, you and your colleagues in that process? Like what, would, what were your responsibilities? 
we were uh, coordinators mostly mm. and basically running around it was super hectic um, <laughs> so so like in the lead up to this we engaged so I think around two-thirds of all staff signed up to be part of this so we engaged them into defining the research objectives what is it that you need to know mm. to you know really uh, be able to deal with the challenges that you have ahead of you so we figured out what questions do you have what is it you think you know what information do you think you need and then we shaped the research program based on that with different kinds of activities and different research questions different manuscripts there were different activities that would fit these different needs and then we just mapped that out for the whole week and signed people up and made little teams and let them do it in tandem and so on uh, so there's a lot of coordination that goes into it. Yeah, and you mentioned that two thirds of the local office signed up for it. What 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 was uh, from where this enthusiastic um, re uh, reception to your idea? Yeah, I think at that time, uh, or still, like they have one really enthusiastic event coordinator and a really very sociable designer working there, and they were like the ambassadors for this project. Mm -hmm. So they were just talking to everyone, saying, like, you should sign up for this. This is wonderful. <clears throat> be part of this. Um, it will be good. Uh, so we had these local champions that really yeah. got people going. Yeah. And how many people were those? Like two, two, two thirds you mentioned. Is that give me give me a number just to have an idea of the size? I, I think we were like 50 or so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 50 or so participated throughout the week. Yeah. Yeah. That's just quite, quite a lot of, you know, first-time research activities. So what you notice when this happens, um, we were dealing with both journalists, but also like, you know, the admin and staff mm -hmm. and, and so yeah. on. We uh, offered some training before, yeah. really basic training. But yeah. like, think about this. This is how you do it. It's okay if it doesn't go well mm. and so on. And we saw that, you know, the people that signed up for this, they were the people that did not have much experience interviewing, mm. uh, but they actually experienced it to be quite easy or they felt okay, whereas the journalists who felt quite confident about their ability to do an interview, they were struggling so much mm. and really realized like, okay, this is different than what I am used to doing, uh, which is an interesting experience for them, I think, as well. Yeah. So, what were what were kind kind of some of your highlights from 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 the week? Like, what 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 did you you mention now the journalist versus the admin? But were there other things that that struck you? The one thing that I think struck me is that now we teamed up people to do this in pairs because it's quite scary to do it by yourself. You know, like you're a first timer. Mm -hmm. um, that a lot of new connections were made. So in this company where people have been working together for maybe even five or more years, but never really talked much to each other because you have different schedules or you just, you yeah. know, working in different areas. They got to work together on this and had this shared experience uh, with this conversation that they had with one of their readers. So what happened throughout the company uh, and the newsroom is that people really started talking uh, to different colleagues than they used to and started having this new connection around a shared experience of doing mm. user research. So that was quite a, like an, a magic bonus effect that we didn't really anticipate before uh, could happen. Uh, but we really noticed afterwards that people talked about this for a long time, like even several months later, they were still talking about, you know, the time we did 
they call it they call it sum talan the conversation in the end so you remember when we had the conversation um they they were really like referring back to this quite a bit throughout their work uh, so that was uh, really powerful in a way mm-hmm. And and what were um, what were the results of that week? Like, do you, did you see? I mean, looking back into your initial objectives, do you feel like they were met, or the how? Yeah, if I think back, um, we had we were too ambitious with our objectives, so we tried to please everyone and made them quite ambitious. And then, if you have you know fifty people taking their own kinds of notes and different things and interviewing and doing research in different styles, of course, you just get spaghetti. Like yeah. nothing of it makes sense. And we tried to do our own analysis at that point afterwards. And it, it just takes so much longer than you mm. wanted to, because you have to go through every recording and, you know, at every point when you were, wish someone would, would have asked why, like two more times, like that never happened. So, so, so yeah, the insights were not as deep as we would have liked them to be, you know, like from like a researcher research point of view you would like insights to be deep and impactful uh, I don't like they were impactful but but they were not as deep as you would like them to be mm. so that's something you have to be comfortable with and I think you know some of the researchers on my team were initially a bit disappointed that's like oh is this what we got This is not how I would have done this. Like, yeah, but you would not have been able to talk to 200 people throughout a week. So this is like you have to see it as like a mass effect rather than like something, something that's a wide effect rather than a very deep impact that you get from it. Um, And I think like in the long run, what you see is like when people experience this kind of conversations, what they learn from it is that. If you have a deeper question or something you're trying to solve for, that you have to look outside of your organization or outside of your company rather than trying to solve it internally and Mm -hmm. workshop it just with your colleagues. Like they they see the value of doing research and looking outside. And I think that's quite powerful because you see that the number of requests for research or help with doing research really increases afterwards. So it's not just that in that moment where you gather and you do this together and you have a shared experience of, you know, learning new things about your yeah. audience, but it like it spreads out throughout the long Yeah. Did you did you notice some of them wanting to do it again or like like yes. like feeling the drawn towards towards that uh, practice? Very much so. Very much so. I think especially, for example, the marketing department really had an eye opener for them. Mm. It was just like. All our marketing material, you know, we get statistics on how often it's seen and so on, but we never know what people take away from this. Mm. And for them to having like shown their sales posters and get some firsthand information about what people see and think, gave them so much inspiration and ideas for how to continue with new kinds of campaigns that they, I think, embedded it in their full practice afterwards. So that's always quite nice to see. Yeah, yeah. And and because um, I, I find it really interesting, right? On, on on the other side, you start with the challenge that you want to democratize the, the practice of research um, throughout the company to 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 a certain extent by democrat 
democratizing the practice, you actually create more of a culture of, of, of asking and observing inside your own in ecosystem, right? Yes, which, very much I, so. Yeah, which, which I would imagine also um, makes... I always thought, you know, like research is, is kind of like a bridge. Um, it's it's a bridge to 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 connect to very disconnected ecosystems. Um, and I think that if you if you in a, in your company you start cultivating more of a practice of of um, of observation and listening, then you would need less research that is that is practical, right? And and then maybe yes. your even your your research team they get they get uh, focused on things that are more profound or things that are deeper or things that are more complex. Yeah, you really see that effect happening because the more teams kind of do their own tactical mm. research, you know, yeah. validation here or there, the more they understand as well as like, okay, I'm validating this here now. I see it's not a good match. I understand that I should have had insights earlier in the process. So you kind of start at the end and then you get them to be keen to do more earlier on all the time and free up space for the research team to do more of the strategic research, really looking further ahead. Yeah, and, and I, I always thought, you know, like as I'm doing something similar in my work, not, not, not with democratizing research, but like being uh, explicit in creating practices of deep listening and, and connection um, in the company. Um, and we do it through coaching and development. But I think one thing that I think it's important once you start being more mindful about this type of practices and that, that you are enabling in your own organization um, is that it has ultimately an effect on, on how the company um, affects its own environment, right? You create products that are, I mean, it's almost as if you're saying, we're not going to create a department on diversity and inclusion. We're going to create practices that enables us to be more diverse and inclusive in our work, you know? Yes, exactly. Like you, you embody it in a way. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, like, if you start opening the door to to observation, to deep listening, to to creating connection, then by naturally doing that, you will you will get you you will get flooded with different information, and you will start processing it also slightly differently. You know? Yeah, very much so. And I think like. The example I told you about now, this was a couple of years ago where we were able to do this in person. And I think there's something really powerful about actually meeting someone and shaking their hands and then having a conversation face to face. Uh, but in the company I'm in now, a uh, fintech company, like we also looked at, OK, how how can we do this remote and online? Like we're in, in yeah. like even besides covid uh, we work with uh, different markets uh, that are outside of Sweden. So we had to find a way to meet people and gain a better understanding of what, you know, what are the needs, financial needs of people in different markets. And you can read about it and you can get reports on this and you can get insights like delivered to you. But then being able to do it firsthand and talk people from different cultures and different mm -hmm. countries firsthand, I think is also really powerful. So yeah. a couple of months ago, we, we did the same type of experiment. Uh, this time it was named Insights Bonanza, uh, which is also a fun and good name, I think. Uh, and there we had also one week to really immerse ourselves.
Yeah, just to check, uh, I'm curious because you're mentioning the name before of Safari and then oh, this one, a Bonanza. What's what's in it in the naming part that for you makes it powerful or, or fun or not fun? Um, I, th I think it's fun because it marks that like, this is something new and it's something mm -hmm. different and it's something uh, that can be easy to remember as well. Uh, I think it helps with you know, promoting it and gaining some momentum and curiosity of your colleagues. Like, are you up for the bonanza? We're doing the bonanza. <laughs> I had one colleague like, we're going bananas next week. It's like, no, it's not bananas, it's bonanza. Like we have, but we, you know, it creates some kind of buzz around something. And it kind of marks it as something that, you know, ideally you would like to do it often, but But in practice, you know, it takes a lot of effort. So it's probably not something you can do every month or every half year or so. So it's like, like naming it something and making it a bit special. And in that sense, like making it easy to refer to mm -hmm. afterwards, I think yeah, has uh, value. Yeah. And I, I've seen now people like, yeah, we know from the Bonanza that this is the case. Or we learned during the Bonanza X, Y, Z. People I refer to it. And is the Bonanza structurally the same as the Safari or did you change something to it or? Yeah, this time, like I learned my some of my lessons. Uh, so I learned like, okay, when it comes to research objectives, maybe stick to two or three and not turn it into 12. So so it was way more limited in scope. Um, and uh, because I had a previous experience that we were able to cobble it together quite a lot faster so we had only two weeks in advance we started to prepare mm. you know and ask the teams and the people like okay what insights do you need like what is it I don't even call it insights I ask people what is your biggest challenge and what do you need to know to be mm. able to uh, counter that challenge um, so we asked people this and then we made research objectives based on this but only very limited amount And then, uh, yeah, we planned similar style one week. Uh, each team had like one day for a different market because we're exploring multiple markets. Uh, and then we, and this time, made more space and time for um, talking about what we've seen and learned. So mm. it was more facilitation. Mm. So the teams and people themselves would be interviewing and taking notes. Uh, but we would have, like one of the researchers would pull them back after each session or each interview they've done and talk about, okay, what have we seen? What have we learned? And have kind of like a group discussion, maybe only for 20 minutes or so before the next interview would start, just to kind of harvest some of the things that people have seen and learned and be more in control of that so it doesn't yeah. become a gigantic effort afterwards. And you can kind of guide people a bit more towards, you know, what you've seen here and what the conclusion you're drawing here that might be biased let's look at this again <laughs> or kind of you know like you can coach yeah. a bit more yeah um so we provided more guidance than i did previously previously i just let people run with it yeah the scale was also different bigger right uh, yes is it, is it was it now a smaller group yeah so this is a much smaller company uh there were Like in the B2B side of our company, we were like 25 people and I think 22 of them participated. So in terms of the number, we're like almost all of them. But 
doing this with 20 something people is different than having 50 geared yeah. up and ready to go. And and you as a research team are responsible for the, the analysis at the end and the implications and all of that or? Okay. Yes. Yeah. But it was much easier because we actually were there hands on and, and participated or observed every yeah. session. And then we had all this good video material. So it was also kind of nice and good to compile a short video afterwards to share with the wider company and make it more tangible and get people to see things themselves as well. Yeah. How, how you mentioned the wider company. I'm curious now with both experiments, like how did you manage to engage your stakeholders to or did you have to now? Maybe you have um, enough power within your environment to be able to just decide to do this and do it. When I worked in the media company, it was really hard. It took me a year to convince them to do it. Yes. And um, I must say, though, like I was working in this company at multiple media houses and some of them were really big and large and kind of, you know, like a bit, bit more slow. And there were some smaller ones that are really on the innovative side. And the one on the innovative side that we did this experiment with in the end, they were really keen from the get-go. And they would contact me every month like, can we do it now? Can we do it now? And I was like, no, I think it will have more impact if we do it in one of the larger media houses. But I, I never managed to convince them to be honest. No. Uh, and in the company that I'm in now, Dreams, like the user-centered practice and that way of thinking is so ingrained in our whole company that I didn't even have to ask for permission. Mm-hmm. It's just like, I think we should be doing this. Like, yeah, of course we should. And then, you know, the CEO is there taking notes and yeah, everyone on the management team and leadership is there as well. Like, this is part of who we are. So it's, it's a lot easier in that sense. Yeah. So it's 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 a more user-centric kind of, is it, is it the user-centricity that makes it difficult or maybe the, the scale of the organization or what, what, what was it that you think? Probably a combination, mm. right? But it, but it is also, yeah, the size of the company or like this company, uh, Dreams, is like six years old. It's a fintech. It's, yeah. They're used to working agile and doing things this way. Whereas so more if power. you're working with a media house of 180 years old, like they like to work fast and be the first with things, but then, yeah, it takes a bit more time. Yeah, and I can imagine more concentrated power at the at the top of the pyramid and, and less yes. this, this decentralization in decision making. Yeah, and I was definitely not at the top of the pyramid, which is okay. But yeah, it, sh- it shouldn't be a pyramid, you know. It should be a circle. Um, yes. the, the pyramid is it's it's not yeah it, it's really not um, a good way to to run a company especially a big company I think because then it separates ultimately then um, then concentrates knowledge yeah but these kind of terms transformations take a lot of time uh, I think so they, they're not there yet yeah no that's why I was I was wondering with the with the first project that you did um, I can I, I can imagine how difficult it is to convince them at the beginning but men um, um, after seeing it in action, did that change? Did that, did some of that top management, no? No, no, people were not, or it, might, it could have probably, but I think I would have had to lobby a lot more. And like just shortly after I went on parental leave, so I was out for a couple of months and, and then you kind of see like, okay, now the impact or the effect has kind of ebbed away and there's new challenges and other big things. 
uh, how much do I fight to get a foot in the door and do this again? Or have I had my experience, experiment and have I learned and have I enjoyed it? <laughs> it's like, uh, yeah, I don't think I was ready to take on uh, yeah. that kind of crusade at that point. Yeah, but I, I, I do think the team there would like to do it again. So I don't know. If they're listening, maybe someone else will, you know, yeah. take up the torch and try again. Let's see. Yeah, I'm curious. What what uh, what type of experiments are you working towards? Like what 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 things are you curious to try out in the future? One thing that I'm still really curious to try out, and I heard about this in a podcast, in the Mixed Method podcast, many years ago, is someone who hosted a dinner with their audience or their end users. Mm. Uh, this is also a media company, I think it was New York based, um, where they would just invite their readers to come for a dinner in the newsroom. And there the editors and other people in Privacy Tech would be having dinner with their readers and would have some exercises to, I think they did an exercise around writing a postcard for you know future readers or other kind of more interesting artifacts to work mm -hmm. with. And I think like, if you think about, for example, the art of hosting movement also has this like world cafe where you have small tables and you harvest, you have small discussions and harvest information or knowledge. And then you move on to the next table and look at a different person. Like so many creative techniques you can use to host meaningful conversations with bigger groups of people. Mm. I think there'll be really interesting things to do with those kinds of yeah. methods. So you're moving more towards the side of facilitation, um, hosting and design, right? Of, yes. Uh, yeah. I think it's quite interesting to do more of that because it's such an immersive experience for both the participant and the those who are hosting or trying to learn from it. It can be quite interesting. Yeah, and, and, and it's also, it, I, I can imagine it does something to the researcher's capabilities because then you are... Um, you are moving the researcher into an explicit space where, where they act not as researchers, but as harvesters of, of yes. um, collective uh, sense-making processes. Yes. Yeah. And quite, it can be so yeah. interesting. And like I often see ads for, you know, user research roles where people are like, mm -hmm. you have to be an excellent storyteller and you have to, you know, socialize all the learnings and that's really big part of your work. And I'm like, Yes, that is a big part of our work, but what? Uh, it's not something that comes naturally to all no, of us. No. So what can we do to kind of reverse some of those roles and make the people who are gaining the insights or trying to learn, make them the storytellers, turn them into your ambassadors so that you don't have to do it. Because you as you're the only researcher have only a limited amount of scope and capacity. If there's more ambassadors and more people who kind of own that narrative, who own the insight, who can be your your storyteller, then you will have way more impact. Yeah. And do you find that this happens in the practice or you, you have to do at the end a double role, like also be the synthesizer of the data through an actual insight and the holding of the space for the research capability? That's a good question. Yeah, I think I think it's all in the role. I think there's like there's so many high expectations 
and high, yeah, it's not high expectations, but you have to be good at so many things in the role of researcher. It's almost impossible, right? Um, so this is why you see all these, yeah, different kinds of expertise popping up, like the research ops specialist and the other people are better at, you know, <laughs> doing a video like editing and like all these different kind of expertise and skills are added all the time um uh, what do you yeah. think <laughs> yeah i think what what drew me to to research is 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 actually that for me it's rooted in curiosity and and you know being able to listen like deeply listen to something and 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 turn it into some turning into a story so I think for me, these are like such human ingrained practices that we've we've been doing with each other, but we've been doing it much more, how do you say that, at, at a higher level when we were living as humans in smaller groups, because then you have more the daily practice of deep listening and holding space for the other story. Yeah. And I think as, as we move into larger and larger communities and hyper-specializations, then this, 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 which is something so innate and natural to the human, uh, becomes uh, a craft, becomes a speciality. Rather, but I do think that everybody has it within themselves, the, the capability to deeply listen, to turn that um, act of listening into an insight about the other's role in the world. Um, this is what drew me to your experiments, because I think what you're doing is like reaching into a space um, that is there, but it has been forgotten or it's been unused unless you plop the expertise label on it, you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, and I do think like what you're saying here about people discovering, you know, that they have this skill or that they do enjoy it. Uh, as well like they enjoy the listening and they enjoy asking the questions and they enjoy like deriving something from it um it's something that comes out of these type of experiments like they they learn about themselves like oh this is actually quite good and i'm actually quite good at this or oh i i would like to learn more about this yeah. because it, it feels good but I, I can you know like so but, you know, then I do think that if you fully commit to this type of practices that turns you as, a, as, as someone that facilitates these processes into a different kind of speciality altogether. So you are less uh, uh, of the researcher that um, is one to one with the subject of research and you try to gather the story and distill it into insight and, and more of this combination that you mentioned of being able to hold space for a group. Um, being able to enable somebody else's sense-making process and maybe the third one being able to synthesize a larger story or a larger narrative a larger insight um, that comes through the filter of all of these vectors um, so yeah and that last one is probably the hardest because that that's where I think in both experiments we really struggle like it, yeah. like things are filtered through different lenses and you still need to turn it into one in a way yeah and um, i think you know like you mentioned art of hosting and and i think there are wonderful practices um of facilitation that help you create stronger vessels uh that 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 puts the um, how do you say the onus of labor on the space rather than on you as individual yes because if you if you um experiment with practices of holding space that really activate the community then then the community is already sense making 
as you go uh, rather than you doing that retroactively. So yeah. I think Art of Hosting has some pretty wonderful practices. I think Deep Democracy too has some um, some good tools. Yeah, so it'd be really good to tap more into that. And then I also think, you know, it's about learning to let go as well, right? It's about learning to let go of, you know, like, but there needs to be quality control and I need to make sure that there's some real tangible yeah. outcomes here. But maybe you have to acknowledge that the experience itself is the outcome and that is what will have the impact rather than your compilation of insights later yeah like, yeah like what is the artifact that comes out of doing something like this is it you know the um, the curiosity that's on fire again within the company and that they have learned new things and are excited or is it a nice slide deck with the highlights yeah the this is what we have learned like yeah but we still expect to have both right so so it's about some expectation management and maybe yeah Letting go a bit, um, it's hard. Yeah. I was um, many years back, I'm not sure if you know the U Lab. Um, yes. Which is, yeah, so many years back, I was in Amsterdam in one of the first uh, laboratories of the U Lab <laughs> when they were still kind of experimenting with uh, what is now the U Lab. Um, but they, they have brought in this wonderful storyteller. Uh, I think it was. Kylie was her name, if I'm not mispronouncing her name. Um, but but what she did was actually very powerful. She was sitting in the room as people were sensing or were talking, and she was literally drawing what they were saying. So then at the end of the this three-hour session, you would have a visual artifact that was produced by somebody that was a kind of a harvester of what was happening in the room. And it always struck me like the depth of, of things that she would draw from from what she saw happening in the group. Like afterwards, if you look back and you think, what happened here? You know, like how can I capture this in a way that makes sense? It's so difficult. Uh, but I think that how do you translate the intangible into some form of tangibility? Because that intangible, I think, always is there in the collective, yeah. you know? This last time we, we worked with video, and I think it's quite powerful, right? If there's some highlights or some things that happen that really resonate and kind of are an illustration of, of the insight, the overall yeah. insight you have, not just like, these are great sound bites, let's use them, but really like, okay, this is a good illustration of yeah. the general yeah. kind of feeling here. I, I think it really helps to have a video reel just because... We connect so much with humans, so seeing them say something mm. does so much more to our brain than seeing a slide that has the exact same quote or the same, you know, yeah. summary. So I think it's quite powerful to work with video. Uh, other than that, yeah, I would love to work also with sketch artists. So, but yeah. budget is limited at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, when uh, I was when I was practice um, more myself, like no, not there yet. What, what drew me to the art of hosting when I, I did uh, trainings as facilitators in the art of hosting is that what I liked about them is that they made very explicit kind of like this uh, when you're holding space, like there's a certain en energy of the group that everybody taps into if you create a good social process. And everybody can feel that, right? Like when you're in a good discussion and you're kind of like you're tapping into the, the energy of that space, of that group. Um, and I think 
these type of like creative uh, artifacts like drawing or singing or like they go naturally drawn into that energy and they just extract it easily. But other than that, one thing that I really liked in, in Deep Democracy that made that also very explicit was at the end of a circle, well, when you were closing, you ask everybody to to share what did they what resonated for them in the group for, on behalf mm. of the group. So then everybody kind of um, then uh, explicitly tries to tap into the collective and say something. Yeah. And I always thought like the the insights that came at the end of that were extremely powerful because you are tapping into this intangible thing that is there that you can feel it in the moment, but you really lose it once the group breaks, you know? Yeah, when um, people start thinking about it too much, it becomes yeah, more yeah. abstract again, whereas if it's really in the moment. Ah, that's really interesting. It's kind of like a checkout question, like to really kind of, yeah, gather. Yeah. And, 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 and also like close the session and kind of, thank each other for being there. Yes. And there was another one that we did, particularly when it comes to conflicts. Um, the deep democracy has wonderful practices of working through conflict for innovation. Like you embrace a conflict because it, it gives you a space in your own mind that you haven't seen before. Um, so there was a practice again at the end of the circle that was focused on conflict where, where the facilitator asked us, um, what was it from somebody's opposite argument that, that told you something about yourself and your own fears? Ah, yes. So every time you kind of react on somebody's extreme or you think of it as extreme point of view, but when you react in a, in a kind of a, an extreme way, it's because it touches on some fears that you have that their point of view might actually be true. So the extreme reaction is a hook into connection. Yeah, because sure it comes it, because it comes out of fear and fear comes from actually believing that what they're saying can be true uh, so then he asked also comes from like um i always say it's like your own allergy or something that you are not so good at and that other people must that other person masters that other exactly so well and like like you don't yeah. like it because it's not something that you master or like something you know it's quite uh yeah, so so like looking at like like the the trigger, the the reaction as a lens into your own into yourself, and what did it tell you about yourself? So he asked that question, and we each had to share towards each other, right? What was the thing that what was the thing that triggered you? And I remember um, we had a debate around um, democracy in the Netherlands, and and that story was like the the challenge that the facilitator put in the group was well, we say that we are a very democratic parliament in the Netherlands, but what if the the party of pedophiles asks for chairs in the parliament? Would we say yes to that? Just because it's democracy, that was the debate, right? Yes. So they put well, a that's very what happens, right? <laughs> it's like, does yeah. this party have a place here? Yeah. 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 So, so then, you know, I got very triggered by somebody's argument that um, that they should not be at the table at all because they are out of the law and they should be, you know, banned. And there was this argument that, and I got very triggered because I was grew up in Eastern Europe in communism where you only had one one view of the world and 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 that was was the correct view and it doesn't even matter if it's the correct view the problem is that it's just one and all of the rest are banned 
So I got so triggered by that kind of no, no, no. Um, and it was about power and it was about, so we had at the end of a, a wonderful conversation about that because the person that held that vision, she never grew up outside of the Netherlands. So for her, she had not experienced what it is like to live without power. Yeah. Um, so anyway, it was, it was, I think it's a, it's a wonderful practice when you start asking, okay, what is it in this fight or in this debate or in this tense conversation that gave you an insight about yourself? If yeah. you, if you look back, you know, in the session, it was really Very cool. much so. And I'm also thinking like, what, how could you extrapolate this to just a simple like user testing, user research, because like we have to confront our own bias or our own beliefs quite often, right? Mm. So this could be one of the questions you ask yourself or the team that's doing research. Yeah. Well. Like, what, you know, what has this participant said that, you know, resonated with you or that tapped into something that you are not sure about or don't believe or that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That, that it might be true, right? Because you have to hold mm. space for the truth of the other. Um, and I think that that is what um, I found very powerful in deep democracy, that it, there is not one truth. Everybody yeah. has their own truth. But, um, yeah, what does the other truth cast a light into the truth of the situation, the objective truth, not your subjective interpretation of it? You know, yeah. really but, wonderful. Uh, I'm inspired. Yeah, we'll, we'll think about this. Yeah. Kathleen, I think we are towards the end of our conversation. So, um I have just one more question. I want to ask you if, if one or more of our listeners are kind of considering doing um, some of the things that you've been doing, um, how should they start? Like, do you have any kind of like tips or tricks on, on how to start go about doing something like that? Yes, I do. I think, first of all, find another ambassador or champion in your organization or company that would like to do this with you because you're not going to be able to pull it off yourself. So finding the ambassadors that get other people on board and opening up to be to wanting to be part of this, of course, is essential because people have to be enthusiastic to try something new and be OK with maybe not being so good at this. Right. Because it's there's a lot of fear connected to this. Uh, interviewing and talking to strangers, right? Uh, so that's one thing. And the other thing is to really reach out to those who are participating in your company and ask them, what is it you, like, what are your biggest challenges and what is it you need to find out? Because that will help you shape research objectives and find participants that actually, that they can connect with. Like they need to connect with the research objective and why you're doing this and feel that they can get something tangible out of it. Um, and other than that, have a lot of fun. I'm always <laughs> happy to talk with if someone yeah. wants to do this, to talk in more detail. Um, I can also share a link to the article my uh, colleague uh, Lucas Toma uh, wrote on this, on our last experiment. The insights nice. Vanessa, I think he went through all the different steps and the do's and don'ts. So, <laughs> so there's a practical guide there. But if you would like to know more, um, just reach out to me. I'm really happy to nice. talk about this. And find a cool name, right? Yes, definitely find a cool name. How did I forget <laughs> that last one? <laughs> it needs to have a cool name. But please let me know what your cool name was because I might need to be able to <laughs> recycle it. Recycle it. Thank you, Kathleen. Um, yeah, it was a pleasure. It was a pleasure having you with us today, and uh, I can't wait to to observe more from the outskirts in your future experiments. Yes, I will be happy to share again. Thank you so much. This was wonderful. 
Thank you for listening, everyone. Follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speaker's work. Join us next time for more interesting conversations. Thank you.